Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with Bela Zebro, and welcome to the definitive rap where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. You know, Bela, over the many years, we've heard Democrats say, when it comes to Israel, there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats. This claim rang hollow for many years, especially as polling came out that showed a deep disparity between the two parties' support for Israel. While any astute observer could see the trouble brewing under the Clinton administration, when Hillary Clinton herself called for U.S. recognition of a Palestinian state, never was the divide more crystal clear than during the Obama administration and the normalizing of the first high-profile anti-Israel Jewish lobbyist group called J Street. Today's guest, a distinguished columnist from the National Review, Jim Garrity, who Bela will introduce shortly, wrote a column about the, the former president's third memoir called A Promised Land where Obama took yet another parting shot at Israel and their prime minister, blaming Israel for the lack of any peace breakthrough in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I myself, an author who wrote the book Israel Betrayed, where I wrote a prior, where I'm sorry, where I wrote a column uh, about Obama's shoddy treatment of Israel, including his making a moral equivalence between the Holocaust and the Palestinian cause. I have many thoughts and questions for our guest, which I will say for the interview, but Bela, I know that you had some comments before you introduced Jim. So, it, yeah, thank you so much, Alan. Um, it has been said that towards the end of his term, Barack Obama betrayed Israel when he refused to veto UN Security Council resolution regarding Israel settlement policy. But he did tip the peace toward the Palestinians, putting Israel not only at, secu at security at risk, but also to being ostracized from the international economic system. In essence, President Obama disappointed many people. It was also no secret that there was little love between Benjamin Netanyahu and Barack Obama. And in his memoir, A Promised Land, Obama discusses the touchy relationship that he had with him. And so it left little doubt to many who claimed that the resentment he felt for Netanyahu was more than a personality clash, but rather that he was not the ally of Israel. Our featured guest, Jim Garrity recently wrote an article entitled Obama's Simmering Resentment of Benjamin Netanyahu. Jim Garrity uh, is, Nationals, is National Review's senior political correspondent. He has made presentations about foreign disinformation campaigns on social media and tools to counter propaganda to the Austrian National Defense Academy, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the University of Vienna, and the U.S. Embassy to Austria. Jim was named CPAC's Journalist of the Year in 2015, 
and also won the Young Conservatives Coalition's William F. Buckley Award that year. He writes the Morning Jolt newsletter and contributes to NRO's Corner blog. He's the author of Heavy Lifting with Kem Edwards, the novel The Weed Agency, which is a Washington Post bestseller, and Voting to Kill. Jim, I am in absolute awe of you and a big fan of your articles, so a hearty welcome to you. Well, thanks to you guys for having me. It's, uh, uh, I enjoyed writing this particular column, and it was, I, I, you know, in an environment with the pandemic and after the election and things like that. And I actually got have lost a few in, questions about that. Yeah, article. it kind of got lost in the shuffle, so it's nice to talk about this topic <laughs> in, in greater depth. Yeah, um, I remember when I used to watch uh, President Obama talk, I recall how each word out of his mouth was measured. It was so clear that nothing that he said ever was not thought out, thought out and thought again before, before it came out of his mouth. And, and I used to wonder if anybody else felt that way. When I read your article where you stated that Obama was a careful writer and he would never risk an argument that APAC controlled or exercised undue influence over U.S. politics, you said that he is not looking to keep a safe distance from those arguments, and he also did not paint APAC in a flattering color either. Can you explain to our listening audience what his mindset for a man who measures each word so carefully before it is uttered and, and, and how do you think his feelings about Netanyahu show resentment, as you stated in your article? And I know I'm laying a lot of questions. I'm just very excited about this. But um, also, why is Obama so insistent that Netanyahu never seriously intended to seek a lasting peace? Mm. Uh, well, first of all, once again, thanks, guys, for having me. Um, I did not necessarily set out to write specifically about Obama and Israel policy. Uh, Obama's memoir, his third uh, came out uh, a couple about a month ago, and everybody else started reading through it and writing about it and analyzing it and things like that. And I decided I'm going to I'm going to do whatever the opposite of what everyone else does. I'm going to read it from the back to the front. And <laughs> the last chapter begins was mostly focused on foreign policy. By the way, right. for those thinking of going getting out getting the book, this book is just up till 2010 or so. Uh, it does involve the Bin Laden raid. I guess that'd be 2011. So it's basically the first three years of his presidency. Volume two is coming out. So if you need a, a, uh, another doorstop to go with this one, uh, you'll have a, a matching pair. Um, and the first chapter, the first or the, the final chapter, I'd say about the first third or so is about the, uh, the Israelis, the Palestinians, and in particular, his relationship with Netanyahu and, and, uh, and AIPAC. And it is worth, again, before I start knocking him around, I'm going to say something Nice. I'm glad the former president wrote, wrote this. I think it is a good for historians' purposes. If, if presidents get together, sit down, take their time and say, this is the decision I made. This is why I made it. This is what was going through my head. And this is why I think I'm right. Whether you love Obama or you hate Obama, I think it's good for presidents to do that. And with that said, he's really, really wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the things that comes out is, look, um, We've had a very different president for the past four years. I have not always been a fan of this, of that, of the current president. And it's, you know, as time goes by and memories start to fade, you may start to feel a little nostalgia about the Obama years. Where, God, you know, he was wrong, but it seemed so normal then. It wasn't the circus every day and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Reading A Promised Land by Barack Obama, 
will take you back. It'll be, you'll feel like you're back in the Obama administration again. And everything that drove you nuts about this president will come right rushing back to you. And, and, you know, and so the first thing I want to get into, not just specifically about Netanyahu, um, a trait of, remember how Obama had this tendency, uh, not just of attacking straw men, but whenever he had to, to uh, you know, describe his position. He would often put together two straw men on opposite sides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, some say we should, uh, you know, yeah. blow up the entire world. Others say we should do nothing and hide <laughs> for the rest of our lives. And I have this sensible middle ground that, you know, and that position. And, and of course, you know, Republicans would be saying, well, that's not really our position. Um, and they'd get very irritated by this. But that was how Obama frequently liked. I think he genuinely thought of himself as the only adult in the room. And that everyone around him is this. You do hapless. say that in your article. Yeah. Um, and, and it really, like, there are a couple examples that I tried to uh, go through here and find. There are two great, two really good ones. Um, one is which, you know, as, as he, towards the end of the section on Israel and Palestine, he starts to talk about the Arab Spring and the uprising we saw in Tunisia and other places. And he starts talking about Libya. And his portrait of Nicolas Sarkozy, who was then the, uh, the leader in France, uh, former British Prime Minister David Cameron, I wouldn't say seething with contempt, but you get, you comes very clear, he does, Barack Obama does not think highly of either one of these guys. And he sees them as, you know, you know, I was in, I was irritated that Sarkozy and Cameron had jammed me on the issue, in part to dissolve their domestic political problems. Um, this is regarding the Libya reaction. And it's kind of interesting how much, in Obama's mind, everybody else is always doing these things for bad, taking action for the wrong reasons. They're always acting, acting out of cynical political motives, and they're always going out on a limb and, and then, you know, running into a cul-de-sac and not figuring out how to get themselves out or something. Um, and he does, you know, very often for folks on the right, but it was another fun example that I think it was very vivid uh, about the issue of, of a, a stopping Israeli settlements. One afternoon, Ben, and I assume this is Ben Rhodes, hurried in late for a meeting, looking particularly harried after having spent the better part of an hour on the phone with a highly agitated liberal democratic congressman. I thought he opposes settlements, I said. He does, Ben said. He also opposes us doing anything to actually stop settlements. So in Obama's mind, he's got these, these folks on the right who don't know what they're doing and are always jumping to conclusions and, and making the situation worse. And even his usual allies, so the liberal Democrats on Capitol Hill, even they are chicken little and even they don't really want to take any action. And even they are kind of cynically, you know, uh, positioning themselves. It's a little of this goes a long way. And Obama really likes to let you know that he was the last of the true idealists. If you've, if you ever watched the West wing and you found mm-hmm. it kind of preachy and kind of you know, <laughs> insufferable about how all the opponents were caricatures, Obama's book is like a three years of the West Wing television series of this noble president and nobody else uh, ever really knowing what they're doing. Well, when you spoke about Israel, for example, and I, again, I wrote this in my book, and I'm not giving myself a cheesy plug here, but he also made the moral equivalence between Israel and the Palestinians. Mm. And he was like lecturing Israel that, you know, I love you so much that I want you to maintain your Jewishness and your democracy as if the Israelis don't know, you know, who they are and what they represent. And at the same time, there were never any requirements. Again, you also reference this in your column that there were never any um, demands made on the Palestinians. Mm. So yes, Israel is a stronger country, but Israel was still living up to certain ideals. Whereas you never asked the Palestinians as George W. Bush did 
uh, in exchange for our support, you're going to have to implement democratic institutions. Now, right, and again, Jim, as you wrote in your column, um, the Palestinians can't give as much as Israelis could, but what they could have done were, for example, and I'm sure you're familiar with a group called Palestinian Media Watch, where they document everything coming out of the Palestinian uh, uh, territories. Uh, for one, the Palestinians could have said, no longer are we going to teach our young kindergarten students that it's glorious to spill the blood of Jews. Uh, they could have said that we recognize Israel. Instead, Abbas said, we will never recognize Israel as a Jewish state. The Jews have no connection to this land and, and other items like that. So this goes back to something about Barack Obama, who made it sound like Israel had everything. They're willing to give nothing. Whereas the Palestinians had nothing, but Israel wanted things that they couldn't give. Yeah. Every once in a while, people ask me, like, you know, you're a right of center guy. Why are you reading Obama's book? And I, you know, even if you disagree with somebody, I think you can learn something from them, even if it's just how they think and how they, how they see the world. And I think this book does a lot of it. There was one section that I think I, I felt enormously illuminating, I guess. It's, it's, you know, it's not quite the Rosetta Stone of Barack Obama, but I think it illuminates a lot of how he sees the world regarding that specific issue of how he was treating the Israelis and how he was treating the Palestinians and what he wanted each side to do, he writes, but given the asymmetry in power between Israel and the Palestinians, there wasn't much after all that Abbas could give the Israelis that the Israelis couldn't already take on their own. I thought it was reasonable to ask the stronger party to take a bigger first step in the direction of peace. Now, at first glance, that might make sense. And might be like, oh, okay. But the interesting thing is, is that, I mean, if you, if you believe that if Barack Obama sees the world, that whenever there's a conflict between two parties and, and one party is stronger than the other, or perhaps more importantly, I should say, one party is perceived to be stronger to the, uh, than the other in the eyes of Barack Obama, then that stronger party is morally obligated to give something up first, to make the first gesture of good faith, to make the first uh, uh, you know, sacrifice of sorts to, to get the ball rolling. Now, in the abstract, that might make sense, but... I think one of the things that's very revealing is that the Israelis probably didn't feel that way at that point because everything from suicide bombers in pizza parlors and rockets being fired over from uh, uh, op opposing territories to all the number of times they have rallies and people chant they're going to death to Israel yeah. and drive. Like, unsurprisingly, the Israelis did not necessarily feel like the more powerful person in that side because it wasn't just them and the Palestinians. It was them and the Palestinians and every other force on earth that either legitimately supported the Palestinians or simply used the Palestinians as a convenient propaganda tool to demonize Israel. I think you can put Iran in that category. You can probably put a lot of Arab states into that category. And that was a situation in which the, the Israelis looked at this and said, wait, why are, why, are, wait, why are we have to make this big first step? They're the ones who are threatening to kill us. We're not running around saying we want to eliminate the existence of all the Arab states and wipe out the Arab race or, or anything like that. Why aren't you putting more pressure on them? And it reminded me of an anecdote I had heard from Eric Cantor, the former Republican congressman from Virginia, who had been in House leadership uh, for a bunch of years. And he used to tell stories about how um, when it came to negotiating, usually on budget issues with the Obama administration, the person he pr preferred to negotiate with was Joe Biden. And it wasn't that he and Joe Biden agreed on anything. It was just generally that if you went to negotiate with Barack Obama, you'd have a half hour meeting and about 25 minutes of that half hour meeting would be Barack Obama trying to explain to you that he understood your interests better than you did. And that if you would just get past this, this mental block you have, you would see 
that he was right and you were wrong, and that's why you should give up all these things that you want, and you should do what Barack Obama wants. And unsurprisingly, House Republicans did not find this persuasive. Joe Biden, for all of his flaws, and I, I have a feeling we're about to get a, a nice up-close-and-personal look at those over the next couple of years. <laughs> yes. Generally, Joe Biden's approach to negotiating was, okay, you guys got want A, B, and C. We want X, Y, and Z. We're going to take them both. We're going to smush them all into the same bill. It's going to be big and unwieldy and spend a lot of money and kind of complicated and contradictory in some ways. But everybody's going to walk away from the table happy that they got something. Now, you can love that style of negotiating, or you cannot, but clearly Eric Cantor, and I suspect a lot of Republicans, are like, well, I'll take that over Professor Obama lecturing me for half an hour about how he knows what's good for me more than I do. <laughs> and in this description, you can almost picture him, you know, Obama trying to explain to Netanyahu, well, you're more powerful, so you have to make this sacrifice. You're, obliga- you're morally obligated to make this kind of, of first gesture of goodwill. And Netanyahu saying, no, because, by the way, People who are strong and who are generally in positions of power, the stronger side in a negotiation, they generally didn't get there by giving away something for nothing, right? You're, you're really asking people for a lot. And in the case of, God, going back, you know, decades in these peace plans that are proposed between the Israelis and Palestinians, very often there's some sort of uh, aspect of Israel being asked to give up concrete assets or advantages, very often land in exchange for promises, in exchange for something that is intangible. And unsurprisingly, the Israelis don't like that because you know, they've been burned too many times by history to have the sense of, look, we give something up and then they break their promise. And then the Western world comes back to us and said, well, this didn't work, but this time we're really sure the Palestinians mean it this time. So if you just give them back a little bit more land, everything will be fine. You know, it's, it's the boy who cried wolf. And, and that's, you know, again, Illustrative, and you look at this, you're like, well, I'm not surprised that Obama did not succeed creating, you know, peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians because he just fundamentally misunderstood where they were coming from on each issue and just couldn't seem to be convinced of it otherwise. You see, I'll go a step further because you're right. There are people who have the mentality that the stronger person should make a concession to the weaker person to make them feel safer. And I get that. The problem with Obama was that he made a moral equivalence between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. When he spoke at the University of Cairo, and I remember it like it was yesterday, he came out and told the Arab world that the Holocaust did happen and you can't deny it happened. I'm like, wow, that's pretty bold of him. And the very next sentence he said, but on the other hand, you can't forget the Palestinian suffering on and on. And he basically made a moral equivalence that both sides have a legitimate grievance. And he's gone on further to say, that just as the Israelis have a right to live here, the Palestinians also have legitimate claims to this very land. And so he came in, his ideology, it wasn't even stronger versus weaker. In his mind, the Israelis were to the Palestinians the way America was to blacks. Yes, America is a great country, but we have a dark history. Yeah, Israel's an ally in their democracy, blah, 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 but they also burned the Palestinians. And I remember there there had been a massacre in an Israeli synagogue and Barack Obama came out and said, we need to denounce the killing on both sides. Again, moral equivalence between terrorists who come into Israel and step. And remember, Israel doesn't retaliate that way. If, they, if Palestinians come in and ram a car into Israelis, Israel isn't going into Ramallah and ramming a car into Palestinians. So Israel always has to be measured in how they respond. But then when they do, they want to send a message. But then they are roundly condemned for it. And this yeah. was the, Trump was the first president to say, you do what you got to do. But before yeah. him, it didn't happen. It didn't happen under Clinton. It didn't happen under Obama. 
And there's a very interesting distinction there. Look, you know, Obama is writing this during the Trump administration. Time has gone by. And you, you know, you'd be surprised how often references to Trump come in, these, in this book. You know, you, you can almost tell how much Obama's perception of what he did has been influenced and perhaps even altered by the election of Trump. But one of the things that I think is a, a, this great contrast here is you know, Obama was president for eight years and Netanyahu was, was in, running Israel the, almost the entirety of that time. Even if you think you're totally, even if Obama thinks he's totally right, even if he thinks Netanyahu is totally wrong, the fact remains Netanyahu is still the prime minister of Israel. And you know, like, like at some point you're like, okay, you've, you've talked until you're blue in the face. You're just not going to convince Netanyahu that because he's the stronger party, he's got to make good gesture. He's got to make some gesture of good faith or something. No matter how many times you try to underline in red, the ways that you think Israel and Palestine, the Palestinians are morally equivalent. Netanyahu is just never going to buy that. So you, you got to move on to something different. And I don't think Obama really did. Donald Trump came to the, the uh, Middle East and, and, you know, almost all foreign policy issues as a total neophyte. Let's not get ourselves. He, he didn't know a ton, which meant he very often didn't know what he wasn't supposed to do. You know, Obama had made vague references to Israel, to Jerusalem being the, captain of, the capital of Israel. But to his credit, he had broken the, the, the uh, process of both Bush and Bill Clinton saying, uh, Israel, Jerusalem is the true capital of Israel and we're going to move our embassy there. And for 16 years, the government would say six months. Ah, we, we're not, we wanted to do it, but we got to review it for another six months for security purposes. And it was this kind of obvious, you know, way of having both sides of the issue. Trump actually did it because he, don't, you know, he didn't know that, oh, I, I wasn't supposed to keep that promise. You know, there was kind of this dynamic there uh, going on there. And as you see with the progress he made with Bahrain and, and other, you know, United Arab Emirates and places like that. Look, this is not completely transforming the region. But it's a very dramatic step in the right direction. And part of it comes because Trump kind of threw out the rule book and just said, hey, what can we get these guys to work together on in terms of trade and commerce and issues like that? I, I, I really enjoy your columns. And so I've, I've started reading them. Um, I mean, before you agreed to be a guest, and thank you so much again. Um, but as, as soon as you agreed to be our guest, I just couldn't stop reading your articles. And being that we are still in this pandemic and we, we mm-hmm. can't overlook where we're at right now as, as in the second wave. Um, and now that people are arguing considerably less about politics, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about people in, in communities and friends who have stopped talking to one another, I think the, argue, the arguing has, has diminished a bit, um, but not about COVID, where there is ongoing contention. So I'd like to touch upon an article that you wrote just a few days ago where you critique mayors and governors uh, mm-hmm. making quarantine decrees. I have my own viewpoints about this issue, but I'm curious to know how you feel leaders of cities and states should be dealing with this crisis. Yeah, a lot of them have handled it badly. And from the beginning of this pandemic, actually going back to like January, at some point on Twitter, I had seen footage of Wuhan, China, had this thing on the back of a truck that I guess was blowing out disinfectant. It was almost like this giant cannon spraying Mm -hmm. the streets and you could see the clouds spreading. And I saw that and I was like, whoa. Okay, yeah, what's this, going this on is, here? Yeah. This is not, yeah, this is well beyond, this is not our normal yeah. uh, uh, circumstance. And we've, we look, <laughs> I think if you're in the United States of America, you, you we, we, first of all, we didn't really pay much attention to SARS because it happened to be breaking out at the same time we were invading Iraq in 2003. We had a lot on our plate at that moment. So it didn't get a lot of attention. MERS, 
H1N1, uh, Zika, a bunch of these viruses. You'd hear ominous news reports, and then by and large, they'd kind of die down and life would go on. And unless you were paying attention to the news, you might not have even heard that there was this pandemic threat. So, you know, people start hearing about this. Oh, you hear about this weird flu in Wuhan at the beginning of the year. It's very understandable that certain people would kind of, eh, uh, you know, they, they're always got some issue going around over there. It's probably going to be, you know, probably. Right. Be. And also people assumed, oh, it's, it has to do with eating bats. What does that have to do with me? I exactly. don't eat bats. Yeah. 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 By, you know, February and getting into March, it becomes clearer and clearer. This is not a mundane, you know, run-of-the-mill thing. And then, in fact, we're dealing with probably the worst circumstance since the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic. This this is something really serious that uh, I suspect when all is said and done, uh, because there are some people who've gotten uh, gotten, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and had terrible effects, even if they're, you know, not elderly, even if they don't have immunocompromised. And then there are people in nursing homes who get it and manage to survive. I suspect when all is said and done, they're going to find out something genetic that probably some of us are walking around with genes Oh, yeah, very, yeah. very vulnerable to it. And some people are walking around with genes. That yeah, they, you and, see that in families, families, right? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, spouses who share rooms together where one gets to get sick and one does not get sick. So we're dealing with this threat, but there's a lot of things we don't know. If, if the moment you caught it, you broke out in green spots, it would be easy because you'd be like, OK, just avoid the people with green spots, you know. But you don't. And people can be there's a 40 percent chance you're asymptomatic. There's a chance you're spreading it and not knowing it. So. I try to have a certain amount of sympathy to mayors, city councils, governors, everybody who's trying to figure out what's the right way to respond to this. Um, I think most Americans, particularly at the beginning of this, wanted to do the right thing. They didn't want to spread the virus. They were willing to stay home for a while. But at some point, they had to make a living. And at some point, they started getting the sense that these rules and regulations were kind of being made up on the fly. And various exceptions would be made. And, and, you know, not too far from where I am in Arlington, Virginia, at one point they had a rule, if more than, they they enacted an ordinance, if more than three people are standing together on the sidewalk, they can get a $100 ticket because that's, you know, gathering in a large group. Now, never mind the Constitution giving the right to peaceably assemble. Uh, There's also that secondary issue of what do you do if you're a family of four? All right, right. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, youngest kid. You got to walk by yourself over there. Right. You know, it, and by the, by the way, Arlington did not actually write any tickets. They did not actually enforce this at any point. So uh, I know by the, the local chamber of commerce said we hadn't noticed any difference in terms of the way people were gathering. I realize they're kind of improvising, but, and I realize they never expected to be in this situation. And I try to have this patience, but there have been way too many examples of governors and mayors who very often by executive order, not even consulting with the legislative branch of their jurisdiction, say, we're not allowed to do this. Stay at home. Don't travel. Don't go to restaurants. And then you find Gavin Newsom eating in the French laundry fancy restaurant. Then you have the mayor of Austin who gave people a video, a face recorded a Facebook video about people need to stay home from his vacation home in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Like you couldn't make this up. Um, the mayor who, uh, oh, mayor of Denver, who told everyone it's time to, you know, you can't, this Thanksgiving, you cannot travel unless it's absolutely necessary. Oh, I got to catch my flight to go visit my family. Yeah. Um, now here's the thing. I think most of these restrictions, people should be, you know, most of this stuff is common sense. Wash your hands, avoid a crowd. Yes, I think you should wear masks. I think it's a relatively minor uh, imposition. I don't think you have to wear a mask if you're walking by yourself outside. And if you're staying six feet away, you probably should be okay. If you're less than six feet away and you're just walking next to each other, you're probably not going to catch coronavirus. 
But again, if we all make good faith efforts, I think we'll get through this sort of thing okay. But when it's very clear, clearly Gavin Newsom doesn't think it's dangerous to eat in a restaurant. He did it. Clearly the mayor of Denver doesn't think it's dangerous to get on a plane. He did it himself. You know, like in each one of these cases, they've, they've demonstrated, well, these rules are for you people over there. It's not really for us. And unsurprisingly, a lot of people look at that and say, well, okay, first of all, you know, blank you. <laughs> and secondly, um, a sense of why would I put, why would I not do what I want to do in my life if you're going to keep doing what you're going to do in your life, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Governor. So look, I think we're heading into the holiday season. The cases are really up. They're really ominous. Yeah. Some parts of the country, the hospitals and ICUs are at capacity or near capacity. Other places, it's not that bad. But I would say to people as they head into this holiday season, if you can get a test, get tested. It's one little more peace of mind. You'll at least know, but at least as of, as of the time of the test, you either had it or you didn't. If you test positive, avoid people. That's pretty self-evident. And if you don't, well, then maybe you're a little bit safer for your small gathering at Christmas. This probably isn't the year to have the big gathering and lots of people and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're close to this. Uh, the UK started vaccinating today. We're going to get it within a week or two. They're going to start with Americans who are most vulnerable. We're really close to the end of this. I, I really think in the next couple of we're, normalcy is going to start coming back in early 2021. Um, but we, you know, every time some idiot governor or, or mayor decides to ignore their own edicts, lo and yeah. behold, people say this whole thing's nonsense and decide to live their lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joe Biden re- recently said that in his w- first 100 days, he wants everyone to wear masks. Mm. Now, again, there is no science or data, to, but what I suspect is he's timing it to coincide with the whole vaccination. So therefore, again, in three months, when, like, mm-hmm. as you said, yeah. it probably will either dwindle down or be gone. He can say it was his policy that day, and this way he can able he can hijack the accomplishments or you know what the vaccine would done uh, through the warp speed, and this way not give Donald Trump any credit for anything that's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Jim, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, 100 days into uh, Biden's presidency will be April 29th. Right. How the heck does he know what the circuit, you know, by April 29th, we, you know, could be pretty close to herd immunity between the number of people who've got it, the number of people who'll be vaccinated and uh, various other measures. So, right. We're starting to wind down and we're running out of time. This is, this is amazing, but um, I, I, I can't end this interview uh, by telling you I'm an avid reader of novels, Jim, and I just can't wait to read your latest novel that came out, Hunting for Horsemen, a dangerous click novel. Can you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting that book, <laughs> oh, but can you give us a brief synopsis of, of your book and what real life events inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, so uh, a year ago, I wrote a thriller. I've always enjoyed them. Brad Thor, Tom Clancy, Michael Crichton. Uh, and I've always wanted to write one of these. I wrote uh, one called Between Two Scorpions, which was about kind of envisioning if terrorists had targeted us and really knew how our culture worked, really knew how to divide us, what sorts of thing, messages and uh, things would do this. And so hunting for, I had another idea for a sequel, and then the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, the pandemic seemed a lot more serious than anything that I could come up with in a scenario. So I started thinking about what would my characters be doing in this? And I started doing a lot of research, both for you know my reporting at National Review and for everything else. Right. And I hate to tell it to you guys, but it turns out genetic engineering of viruses is a possibility. And what people are, are in the national security community are now starting to worry about is, could you take a virus and engineer it so it only affected, like we talked earlier about being genetically yeah, we just vulnerable about that. to yeah. this, mm-hmm. aim at particular uh, genes, uh, effectively mm-hmm. an ethnic bioweapon or something like this. And really frighteningly, 
a version of this actually was offered to the South African government back in the 1980s. They don't really, people don't really know if this was a hoax or whether it was somebody really doing research in this area. So that's the thriller. It is they, my team of heroes finds out somebody wants to engineer a virus to target only certain genes and it's off to the races to see if they can catch them. Uh, with okay. a little bit of science, like I said, a little Michael Crichton-y, but uh, it's set in the months after the pandemic when the world is trying to get back to normal. And so and hopefully this, that'll uh, be soon <laughs> when yes. we're going to try to get back to normal. I encourage our listening audience to order Hunting for Horsemen, now available on Amazon ASAP. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really out of time. Um, it's I, As I said, I'm in all of you. You're, oh. you're <laughs> really, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, guys, thank you very much for having me and uh, happy to come back anytime. And thank you for joining us on behalf of um, Alan and myself. Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. Oh, whichever that's you, right. Whichever happy you're Hanukkah. observing. <laughs> thank you, you guys. In our house, yes. we celebrate both. So I look yes. forward to that. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. Take care, Take care guys. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.